Well, we are in Matthew 2 this morning, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, as we in just recent weeks have started a new series in this uh, great book describing for us the coming of the Lord Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. As you're turning to Matthew 2, let me start with something provocative. It's that Christmas is a time for conflict. I don't mean it's a time when families get pretty good at having conflict, though that might be true. I mean, more fundamentally, Christmas is actually about conflict. Jesus was born into conflict. His birth elicits conflict. This is the forgotten fundamental element of Christmas. We like to emphasize Christmas cheer and warmth and celebration and childlike wonder and awe. And I love all of that. I don't propose that we have any less of the happy and hopeful in our Christmas celebrations. But to robustly celebrate Christmas, we must first truly encounter the Christ of the Christmas who was king. Not just a cute baby and not just a savior. The arrival of this king is a fork in the road for all history, for all humanity. We see this in Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1, that song in response to the angel's news that she was bearing the promised Messiah. Listen to this. It just goes back and forth. Mary says, His mercy is for those who fear Him, but He has scattered the proud He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. The same can be seen in Simeon's words in Luke 2 when he finally gazed upon that long-awaited child and said, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many, a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Yes, Jesus came to bring peace. And so we rightly read of and sing about the, the angels who announced to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But Jesus himself later said that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He came to divide families when some of them believe and the others don't. We see this tension This conflict, this fork in the road, this division of history, division of humanity, so vividly in Matthew 2, a tale of two kings. It's the story of the wise men and Herod and Jesus. And you might think wise men, two kings... I thought there were three kings. The song goes, Ryan, we three kings of Orient are. Well, sorry sorry to ruin the song for you. But the wise men weren't kings. And we don't know if there were three of them. There could have been two or ten or we don't know. So when I say a tale of two kings, I'm not referring to the wise men at all. I mean, Matthew 2 is really about these two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. And the wise men actually play a supportive role 
in highlighting this contrast between the two kings in the story Jesus and Herod. Or to put it another way, it is King Herod's resistance to, in opposition to, the true King Jesus that shows us this dividing line I've been speaking of, that shows us this Christmas conflict we've been talking about. It shows us that Christmas is, it can be, threatening, especially if we're intent on protecting our own little kingdoms. So let's read the whole chapter together. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. As I said, it's a tale of two kings. Of course, it's not just a tale, it's not a myth, it's history, but it is a story. You have two kings and two kingdoms contrasted in a number of ways. And you probably noticed as well that there are a number of Old Testament scriptures referenced and said to be fulfilled in the passage. But it might be easiest to chart our course as we discuss this together 
along the plot line of the story. And there are four parts to that. First, the true king is pursued. The true king is pursued, and a rival king is threatened by that. Now, this first point will take a good bit of time because we need to establish up front who and what is involved here. Who are these people, and what is this star? Who are the wise men? I've already said that they weren't kings, and we don't know how many there were. But that phrase, wise men, might also be misleading. They were magi, as some translations have. And magi were something like philosophers, slash kingly advisors, slash seers, slash interpreters of dreams, slash magicians. They were students of the stars. You can think of them being as something between astrologers and astronomers. Thankfully, in our day, there's a clear difference between astrologers and astronomers. But in their day, it wasn't so clear. The star-gazing experts were also the predictors of things. And these guys were interested in every bit of information, every source of information they could get their hands on. They collected prophecies, and they studied the stars carefully. Apparently, they were willing to consider even the prophecies from our Old Testament Bible. Remember that some 600 years before the birth of Jesus, the Jews were in Babylon. Babylon. People like Daniel rub shoulders with these kind of guys, like the Magi. And so it's likely that Magi knew of prophecies like this in Numbers 24. Back in Numbers 24, there was a prophet there, Balaam. He was a shady prophet, but here he rightly spoke of one to come like this. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. One from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So watching the stars with these kind of scriptures in hand, these magi had come to await a great king coming out of Judea. And then one day they saw something so momentous, so unusual, something that wasn't normally there, and likely they connected what they saw to that prophecy in Numbers 24, a star rising. What was this star? Well, we don't know for sure. It doesn't have typical star-like properties. Stars don't rise. This one rises, disappears, reappears, and moves again. Some say that this was a purely supernatural thing. And certainly God could do that. God could put a bright light somewhere in the sky and move it around. That's not beyond his capabilities. A book by Colin Nichol just came out in the last decade or so called The Great Christ Comet makes a strong case for it being a comet that actually appeared around 5 or 6 B.C. But whatever it was, God was behind it. That's what matters. It was clearly a sign, and the Magi took it as such. And so they set out in the direction of the star. It leads them to Jerusalem, the Jewish capital city. It would have been about a 900-mile journey for these wise men if they were coming from Babylon, and they probably were. That's a journey that would have taken at least a month or two. And it would have been no small group. You, you probably picture three guys on three camels. But picture an entourage instead. An entourage with supplies and servants 
and protection and comforts. So there was no small amount of preparation to go, no small amount of effort in traveling, no small footprint once they arrived in Jerusalem. Just their arrival would shake up the town. Something is afoot. And not to mention their question to King Herod, verse 2. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled. In fact, that Greek word behind troubled is like jolted, shocked, terrified. It's, it's a word used when people think that they saw a ghost. Herod was terrified. Why was he terrified or troubled? Well, because that happened to be Herod's title, king of the Jews. He wasn't Jewish. He was actually Arabic by heritage, but he had identified with the Jewish religion in these days and gotten behind it, at least conveniently so. He, he connived his way into this regional ruling position by kissing up to the Romans. And so it was the Romans that had conferred this title, the king of Judea, or as he preferred, the king of the Jews. And notice that the text emphasizes that. Two times we're told, Herod the king did this to set up this contrast between two kings. And so when foreign dignitaries like these wise men come to town in search of a newborn king of the Jews, because they had seen a miraculous sign in the sky, you can understand, at least humanly speaking, you can understand how that would be threatening to Herod. And add to that that King Herod was a psychotic, ruthless, and paranoid man. Paranoid about losing his throne at every turn. He had his wife killed. He had his wife's mother killed and her brother. He had three of his sons killed so that they wouldn't threaten the throne. Caesar Augustus once joked that he'd rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. So Herod, troubled about these wise men and their question. Well, for now, he accommodates things. These wise men ask where the Christ was to be born, and so Herod sought the counsel of the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, all of them, all the chief priests and scribes. Where's the Christ to be born, he asked, and they told him. This was like Bible trivia for 100, Alex. For them, this was easy stuff. Micah 5, which Jay read for us. It's only verse 2 that Matthew quotes. But here, let me read just a bit more than Matthew quotes so we can see how important this section of Micah 5 is. O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. All that coming out of O little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, a small town, backwoods town, an insignificant town. Of course, a town with a rich history. It was the hometown of King David and also a, home, a town of great promise because of Micah 5. And who is this one to come According to that Micah 5 prophecy, just notice, he's not just born in Bethlehem, that's important, but he is an eternal ruler who will shepherd his people, not just rule them, but shepherd them. 
and provide peace and security. He'll do it in the majesty of God. And he will be great even to the ends of the earth. That's really quite a lofty promise. Those are big shoes to fill. How much of that do the wise men understand? We don't know. They apparently didn't have the Bethlehem prophecy in their briefcase of stargazing. But they had enough to follow the star. They had enough to pack up, leave home, travel. And they knew enough to get to Jerusalem and to ask questions and from there to pursue him some more. This king is to be pursued. We are to pursue him. Thankfully, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to ask questions about him. But we should be willing to go to great lengths with great effort to pursue him. Are there questions you have about him? Ask someone. Are you here today? You're not a Christian? Maybe you haven't been in a church ever or not in a long time. Well, this is a great place for you to be. This is a great place for you to bring your questions and your doubts as you begin to pursue him. And Christian, keep pursuing him. Keep pursuing him. This is how we came to him. And this is how we keep seeking him. Secondly, the true king is to be worshipped. He's to be worshipped. The wise men went to Bethlehem. They saw the star reappear and then seemed to set over a single house. And it says then, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they went into the house. They saw the baby and they fell down and worshipped him. They offered gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Catch the themes here. Joy and worship and gifts, all from those who are far off. Those from nations far away. Those who were not likely to find the Savior let alone fall and worship him. And all that seemed to be foretold back in Isaiah 60. Listen to this. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations shall come to your light. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Joy, worship, gifts from those far off, from Gentiles. The story of the wise men tells us that Jesus welcomes the foreigner, the nations, the outsiders, the unexpected ones. Jesus here welcomes pagan philosophers and sorcerers. And this was God's plan all along. It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant that God would, through the seed of Abraham, bless the nations. Of course, it's how the book of Matthew ends, going to the nations. Jesus sends his disciples out on mission. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But we often forget that it's also right here at the beginning of Matthew's book. Now, whether the wise men grasped the full significance of this newborn king, whether they really bowed in worship, understanding his divinity, 
His deity? We don't know. But what they do here is certainly more than just respectful, more than just pay homage. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They fell down and worshipped. And why? What did they see when they looked upon this woman and her child? Did they see a child aglow with God's radiant glory? And that's what told them this is clearly the one. No. They looked down and they saw a child. A normal looking child. Born to impoverished teenage parents who were soon to be refugees living in a small town called Bethlehem. And so the actions of these wise men requires some measure of faith. Yes, they had the miraculous light leading them. Yes, they received the Bethlehem prophecy this one would be born in Bethlehem, but to gaze upon the child or the parents or the home, none of it would speak royalty. None of it would signal, of course, this is the king of kings. But in faith, they come, they see, they believe as far as they can so far in their trek towards faith and they worship in faith anyone can come to jesus anyone no matter how far away you are right now you can come to jesus everyone should come to jesus Jesus is worthy of our pursuit of him. Jesus is worthy of our worship of him. And he alone is. And yet, not everyone will. Not everyone agrees. Not everyone pursues. Not everyone asks questions. Not everyone comes and sees and bows and worships. One of the saddest realities of this passage has to be the apathy, the indifference of the religious leaders. It's only subtly hinted at here. Remember, Herod assembled all the religious leaders of, of, of Jerusalem, inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. And apparently they gave their trivia answer and went back to work. There was no follow-up. They gave their answer and seemed to be content to leave it at that. No follow-up question to, to King Herod. Wait, wait, why do you ask this? Is there something afoot? Is there something we should know about? No. They simply yawned, went back to their Bible study, and their temple duties. Charles Spurgeon points to the irony of the passage. He says, Those far off drew near, and those seemingly near proved to be far off. And that couldn't be more true of Herod. Thirdly, the true king is opposed he is opposed as this pretend king turns murderous. Verse 13 tells us that Joseph was warned in a dream to flee Bethlehem because Herod was about to search for and seek to destroy the child. So apparently his ploy to get the location of the child king from the wise men in order to worship him, he said, verse 8, apparently that was just a ploy. But Joseph was warned, and so Joseph did what the angel instructed, and he took Mary and Jesus to Egypt. This is reminiscent of another Joseph story with a different Joseph. The last one-fourth 
of the book of Genesis is devoted to the story of Joseph, a guy who received dreams and from Egypt was integral in preserving the promised line of the Redeemer. That's the point of the story of Joseph in Genesis. And it's no coincidence that Matthew is showing us another Joseph who receives dreams and from Egypt preserves the promised child. But it's not to a place like that that Matthew directs our attention as he directs our attention back to the Old Testament. But he directs it to Hosea 11, verse 1. You see that in verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now what's going on here? Hosea is a prophet who wrote just before the days of the exile, the Babylonian captivity. And through the prophet Hosea, God was saying to his people that there's this pattern in his plan that's being repeated. Out of Egypt I have called my son. My son there is the nation Israel. Out of Egypt refers to that time in the book of Exodus, in the days of Moses, where God redeemed his people out of Pharaoh's slavery. Out of Egypt I have called my son. God was reminding his people of his ways of redemption through exile and through exodus, like those days of Moses. So why does Matthew pick up that line in Hosea 11.1 and say that Jesus' safekeeping in Egypt is fulfilled is fulfilling Hosea 11.1. Well, it's fulfilling it not in a conventional way of this Old Testament promise is then fulfilled or that this prediction is then fulfilled, but that there's just this correspondence. Often when Matthew says that this Old Testament thing is being fulfilled, when he uses that word fulfilled, what he usually means is that an old pattern, a type was established in the old, and now Jesus is going to take it to a new reality. He fulfills it. He fills it full. So Israel was God's son in the Old Testament, and God rescued Israel time and time again from Egypt, from Babylon, and others. And Jesus is God's ultimate son, the perfect son, and God will protect and guide him perfectly. He fulfills it. Even through this crazy thing, verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Herod's fury and rage became so great that he had no patience for a surgical hunt for the child that he wanted dead. And so he had all male children, two years old and younger, murdered. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And here he quotes Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And it's another one of those Old Testament quotes where at first it doesn't seem to have anything to do with Jesus. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What's going on here? Well, Jeremiah was a prophet in the days of the exile, the Babylonian captivity. And here he paints a picture of the town of Ramah, where many Jews were taken captive by the Babylonians. It was that 
crucible moment, that crucible place where Babylonians said, that dad is going here and that kid is going over there. Families were torn apart, taken into slavery to a foreign land. And so rather poetically, Jeremiah imagines Rachel, that matriarch of Genesis, who was buried not far from Ramah, he imagines her weeping with loud lamentation at the deportation of God's people. In other words, she's weeping from her grave. And Matthew picks up on that and suggests that now, in the murder of the little ones in Bethlehem, there is another moment for great grief and heartache. And yet, there is still hope. Jeremiah 31 goes on in the very next verse to talk about hope. Overall, Jeremiah 31 is a chapter that is not dark, but it's hopeful and bright. It ends with the promise of the new covenant. I think we're to take note of that hope and apply it to that dark moment in Bethlehem. The murder of the innocent children was breathtakingly sad and Rachel weeps. But it is far from the last page in the story because in the process, Jesus is being rescued And he will soon save the world. This pattern is all over the Bible. Matthew has several quotes and allusions to the Old Testament as we're noticing. If you feel a little, well, overwhelmed by that, you feel like this is some thick plowing, well, be comforted with with what he didn't include. Let me add some things. This pattern's all over the Bible. Genesis 3, verse 15, that first promise was that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would be at enmity. And of course, the seed of the woman would eventually prevail over the seed of the serpent. But until that happens, there's going to be war. And Genesis 4 shows it in the first offspring. Cain kills his brother Abel. It just keeps going. Pharaoh is executing male Hebrews. The beginning of the book of Exodus. You see it in that that battle between David and the blasphemer Goliath conflict. You see it in the life of Jesus. Later in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see it with the Jewish leaders who so quickly begin to plot about how they're going to get him killed. And that's eventually what they do. That's what eventually leads to the cross. But here at the beginning, the shadow is cast. I heard someone say it this week. I don't know who to give credit to, but I heard the cross casts a shadow on the cradle. You see it? Herod is in hot pursuit to take out Jesus. It's what was so vividly described in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They say, let us burst their bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. They have no ownership of us, the Lord and his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs at their plotting. He laughs. This is what Herod was plotting in Matthew 2, futilely so. There's a lot of history and precedent for it. He was so committed 
to his own self-rule, his own little kingdom, that his fear turned to fury, murderous fury. That's actually in all of us. Probably none of us in this room are as bad as Herod was, but all of us have a little bit of Herod in us. We all, by nature, apart from God's grace, are seeking to place ourselves on the throne of our lives. We want to cast off restraint. That lie that the serpent told Eve in the garden, you can be like God, has been alive and well in every one of her offspring since. Now Herod is an alarming example of how far that dynamic can go. Murdering many infants and toddlers just to get rid of one potential threat to your throne. That's an alarming example of how far it can go, but it's not foreign to us. And yet, God's grace can conquer that in any of us. Any of us. God can overcome that. The wise men are actually wonderful examples of that. Every Christian is an example of that. Any Christian you talk to should be able to tell you that. That becoming a Christian involves not only faith and getting forgiveness, but it also involves a new allegiance. Dying to self is how Jesus put it later on. Taking up our cross. We actually have to come to him. Not just get from him, but come to him and bow before him. Which means we've got to stop opposing him and running from him and being indifferent about him. So I wonder, if you haven't yet, will you? Will you ever lay aside your self-will and cling to Jesus? And the good news is that that move doesn't have to feel like it's a loss, like it's bad, like you lose out. No, it's all gain in coming to Jesus. Because Jesus is a totally different kind of king than you are ruling your life. In this passage, he's certainly a different kind of king than King Herod. It's a tale of two kings, one who is selfish, murderous, who flies off the handle, who's pathetic and desperate and small, and another king who Matthew goes on to show us story after story is compassionate and gracious, gentle, sacrificial, Herod killed to protect his little kingdom and Jesus died to let us share in his glorious kingdom and he invites you to come in he'll say in chapter 11 of Matthew come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Now lastly and quickly we flip the coin and we say this the pretend king is defeated. With each of these points there are two sides, there are two kings being contrasted and here the pretend king is defeated as the true king is preserved. Now, I won't reread the last paragraph for us. It has another dream or two. It has another escape or two. 
It explains to us why Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, was actually raised in Nazareth, a town that was even more small, more backwoods, more overlooked and insignificant than Bethlehem was. It anticipates the later complaint that some have when Jesus is an adult. They say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The last paragraph, verses 19 to 23, brings this part of the story to a conclusion, showing us that God protected Jesus all the way through. God protected Jesus all through Herod's final days. Herod, like all other kings, died. He eventually died. They all die. And they will not escape a reckoning. There will be justice for those male children in Bethlehem. All pretend kings, all would-be kings, will have their pathetic self-made kingdoms ripped out of their hands eventually. Now, Jesus died too, but not in defeat. He died and he rose victoriously. God didn't protect him from the cross, but God did protect him through the cross. His death wasn't accidental or unfortunate. He laid down his life. It was all according to plan. The shadow of the cross was laid across that birth scene in his earliest days. He came to die, and he died sacrificially. He died in our place. He died for us. He died for our sins. He died deserving no death, but taking the death we deserve. What a king. What a king. Why would we ever look to another king? Why would we ever make ourselves king? Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, but he also died to free us from ourselves. Aren't you sick of the hollow, empty, self-king-making efforts that you've given your life to? Jesus invites you to come to him and bow and worship. He'll take no gifts as a payment for his grace, but there is no gift that is too great, too rich for this king who deserves our all. Until we get that, Christmas represents a conflict, a confrontation, a parting of the ways, a fork in the road, a division of all humanity. This king has come, and there's no going back. And this king will come again. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We find a number of responses to Jesus' arrival in our passage. I wonder where you see yourselves. Some were troubled, but nothing more is said about them. Maybe it wasn't a troubling that led to salvation. Some were indifferent, apathetic, even though they knew the religious answers. They knew the Bible trivia. And it wasn't enough for them to keep pursuing, keep asking, and seeing and believing. One in the story was full of murderous rage. But there were some, maybe three, maybe 30, we don't know, but there were some who came to Jesus and they rejoiced exceedingly. With great joy. 
I mean, just what a, what a stack of joy. This is a Big Mac of joy. Re- rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They worshiped. I invite you to do that today. And Christian, let me just say quickly, there is still a conflict taking place in this world. Psalms, Psalm 2 is still in effect. The nations do rage. But God will see us through it. Even when it feels like we're hanging on by a thread, even when it feels like we are on the run from threat, even when it feels like we're refugees. God will see us through. Just look back to this story. He saw his son through. And Jesus will come again to bring that long cosmic conflict to its final completion. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we thank you for your word and for your marvelous grand plan for the fulfillment of promises and patterns from long ago, for your plan to raise up kings, even wicked ones, for your purposes, kings who oppose you but are not, are not able to affect anything according to your plan, which is so sure. We thank you, Lord, for... You being in control of our lives for the coming and goings of families in this world. We thank you most of all for the coming and the dying and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus, our Savior, the King, the only King. We pray in his name. Amen.